it's actually a perfect time to take a pause in our study of the book of Revelation and just talk about what we've done so far because for two different reasons. One is we have a three-week break from the book of Revelation after today because next week's the retreat and then there's Easter and then I'm gone in China. And so uh, uh, there's a pause in our uh, pattern. But it's also because there's a, there's a natural pause in the text itself of the book of Revelation. Uh, because today we finished the seventh seal. So this whole vision, the, we already saw the vision of Jesus and then the letters to the seven churches. And then we, come, we have the visions of God and the Lamb in Revelation 4 and 5 and the seven seals. So it's sort of a tidy package. And, um, and then next we move on to the seven trumpets which come after the seven seals. Now, um, let us begin with prayer. Lord, we look to you today. We thank you so much for your word, and in particular for this book, and how you have hidden in it so many things to inspire us and encourage us and fuel our hope as we walk through this world and this life we pray that tonight, this morning, O oh Lord, you would be with us and guide us and use this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is try to just run through the book to refresh your mind of what's in the first seven chapters of the book before we get into talking about sort of the big picture lessons that can be learned which is what we're going to do today is talk about you know if I was preaching to a congregation that was already familiar with the book of Revelation and I was just I was preaching the whole seven chapters the whole seven first chapters of the book this is what I, I would talk about so that's sort of uh, gives you an idea of what we're about to do today um, so the book begins with two, strangely, two introductions. The first one is in chapter 1 to the, uh, the book itself as a whole, apparently. The second one to just this first segment, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And that is the one in which we see the, uh, the vision of Jesus, or following that introduction is immediately the vision of Jesus, uh, who appears in glory, remember? And uh, he has a sharp two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth. And John, when he sees Jesus, falls down as dead, as though dead. But Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and assures him, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And then immediately we go into the uh, seven letters to the seven churches. And... Um, this, we believe that this letter was probably written in the 90s AD, so it's close to the end of the first century, and we're given this little snapshot of what the church was like at that time in history. What are some of the characteristics that, you know, as you think about those seven letters, what are some of the things that occur to you about what the church was like? What, what is it telling us about what the church was like at that time in history? What are some adjectives you would throw out? 
some were struggling with sexual immorality. Okay. S sexual, sexual immorality was a struggle. What else? Drifting from Christ. Generally. Okay. Some were drifting. Some were drifting. All right, there are doctrinal battles and doctrinal impurities that were already coming into the church. Similar. Similar. Very similar to what we deal with today. Oh, similar to today, yes. The issues are Right. And it's not just that it's similar then and similar today, it's been similar ever since. That's the part of the, the thing that really hits us when we read this is that uh, it's so very similar to, you know, um, so many Christians are like so disenchanted with the church and for good reason, there's all these problems and more. But it's always been that way since the very first generation of the church. Here are some other adjectives that I've written down. Uh, imperfect, for sure. Persecuted. Struggling. Watched, we'll get to that in a little bit. Gullible, heroic, cocky, and of course, here I have the last church, the Church of Laodicea, in mind, and besieged. So, it gives us a snapshot not only of the church of the first century, but the church of the ages. Okay, then in chapter 4 we go to this great vision in heaven of God on his throne being worshipped by the 24 elders and by the four creatures. Then in chapter 5 there's sort of a sequel to that vision. And uh, the, the, we zoom in on the one who's on the throne, the Lord on the throne or God on his throne. And in his hand he's got a scroll and the scroll has set, it has written on the inside and outside and it has seven seals on it so it can't be opened and no one is found to be able to open the scroll and John is weeping because of that and then all of a sudden there is introduced the Lion of Judah who can open the scroll and John turns after the introduction and behold it wasn't a lion at all it was a lamb and so we're introduced to this character, this great character in the book of Revelation, this lamb. And then he is worshipped. And his worship, instead of just twofold, it's sevenfold. Um, it, is, it is amped up considerably because of what he has done to qualify himself, to be able to open the scrolls. Okay? Then in chapter 6, there's the beginning, then this, the seals begin to be removed from the scroll. The first four seals get removed in the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 6. And these four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they are called and given the authority to uh, bring significant destruction upon the earth. Significant and yet only partial. This is not total destruction. And, uh, and then the fifth seal, which is in 9 to 11 of chapter 6, 
We find the saints in heaven crying out, How long, Lord, before are you going to bring vengeance upon those who shed our blood? And, uh, and the answer is, um, you know, keep waiting. And uh, they are clothed in white robes and told it won't be much longer. Then the next seal, the sixth seal in verses 12 to 18, or maybe 17, I can't remember, 17, um, is in fact this great day of wrath when the, the heavenly bodies are, are, are darkened or brought crashing down to the earth and then um, the wicked are fleeing away and calling to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And then we have chapter 7. We're expecting the seventh seal, but there's no seventh seal in chapter 7. It doesn't come until chapter 8, where we'll talk about this morning. But in chapter 7, there's either an interlude or part 2 and part 3 of the sixth seal, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the first of that, uh, there are two parts in this chapter, and the first part is the in verses 1 to 8 is the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel and how they're sealed to protect them from this destruction that's been uh, poured out upon the earth. And, um, and then the second half, 9 through 17, is this great innumerable assembly from every nation, tribe, language, and they're all worshiping and, and uh, worshiping the Lamb and, and talking about the wonders of what he did. And the Lamb begins to uh, give them um, you know, comfort and promises of his being with them and shepherding them as, as their shepherd. And so that's the way that chapter 7 ends. And then today we come to the seventh seal. And I'll just give you a sneak peek since some of you don't know what happens in the seventh seal. The seventh seal is one verse, at least in my opinion it's one verse. And it says, the Lamb opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Period. So that is what we're given of the seventh seal. I'm not going to get into that because that's what we're doing in the sermon. But I did want you to know it so that you could uh, sort of view it in context of uh, the rest of this and talk about what we're, um, you know, the big picture lessons here. So, what have we learned so far about things, about life, about God, about ourselves, about our salvation uh, from this book? The first thing, first question, what have we learned so far about the world? What have we learned about the world? And on each of the, you know, I have a, I don't want to, dilly-dally with these uh, questions, but if somebody has an answer, I'm happy to, to let you state that answer. What have we learned so far about the world? Okay, it's going away. Um, that is mostly later in the book of Revelation. That's right. We learned so far that the world is a very troubled place. There's conflicts and there's um, famines and there's death left and right, there's bloodshed and, uh, and uh, that's made clear. We also learn about the world that it's antagonistic towards God's people. Um, 
there's uh, we see lots of evidences of persecution and and a seduction that, that of the church, Mike. Right. Okay, so that brings us into the second question. What have we learned about the sovereignty of God? And uh, in, the, in that, you know, we see that God is sovereign over the turmoil, the apparent turmoil that's taking place on the earth. Um, he's also sovereign over the, the world's antagonism towards his own people. Um, he is the first and the last. So he is the one who's not only, um, he's not just the watchmaker that sets it all up and stands back, but he's the one who's going to be there to finish what he began. So he is bringing it to a conclusion. Um, it's from the throne that all these directives are issued. And, and he's the center of the, of the architecture of the book so far. Everything else orbits around him. He's at the center of everything. Um, the horsemen are given authority to wreak havoc by him. And then, you know, the lamb is the one opening the seals that release them. And then one of the horsemen is explicitly is said to have been given authority to wreak all this death upon the earth. And then uh, that's the fourth horseman in 6 8. Um, so, and, and we see on the throne, you know, God's sitting there. He's not fretting. He's not worried. He's not agitated. He is tranquil. And uh, he is working out his will upon the earth, even though uh, it looks from the earth's perspective like all hell is breaking loose. And uh, not only is, uh, I mean, there's still, there's another little indicator of God's sovereignty in this picture too, and that's that um, at one point in the second vision, this Revelation 5, there, the, all the creatures of the earth are worshiping God. So here's all the creatures on the earth, even though, you know, the, the, even the wild beasts who are one of the things that was unleashed by the four horsemen to kill mankind, wild beasts, even they are in that, in that, that just a few verses earlier, bowing and worshiping the one on the throne. So, again, doing his work. Um, then what do we learn about the church? What do we learn about the church? We already said some things about the, the church, at, you know, from Revelation 2 and 3. We certainly learn that the church is in a world of trouble. And I don't mean that in its euphemistic meaning. I mean it is located in a world which is a world of trouble. Yeah, Sarah. That, very good. The church will persevere. It has, it has been, uh, uh, is being protected. Let me just tell you though that the next section is, 
about Jesus and his church. So in terms of that, we'll, we'll save that for later, even though you could, if you don't know the questions, you don't know which one to answer, you know, for which one I have in mind. But um, so um, it is, the church is in many cases, when you look at it, especially in, Roman, in Revelation 2 and 3, it reminds me a lot of the simpleton in the book of Proverbs. Remember the two women in the book of Proverbs? There's the woman named Folly and there's the woman named Wisdom. And both of these women are out in the, on the highways and the byways advertising their wares, trying to get the simpleton to come and buy what they're selling. And, you know, the, the uh, woman Folly is doing it by deceptive. She's promising all kinds of pleasures and delicacies, and but what she's hiding is that all this leads to death. But the the woman wisdom is saying, "Come to me, listen to me, and I will give you life." And in very much the same way, the church exists um, in that you know both the world and the Lord are um, calling out to her the church, and pleading with her to listen. In particular, you know, we find in the end of chapter 3, where the, in the letter to Laodicea, that the Lord is knocking on the door and calling out. And those who hear the calling and open the door, he will come into them and dwell with them. Just like the image in Proverbs, you know, which house, the question is, which house are you going to go into? You know, which, which, um, who are you going to invite into your house? And the Lord wants to be the one that comes into your house and that you fellowship with and not the world. Um, so then let's get to the Jesus and his churches, or Jesus and his church and Jesus and his churches. Um, First, in Revelation um, 2 and two and 3, the chapters, we see that Jesus is saying to every church, I know what's going on. I know that you're being persecuted. I know that you pretend to be believers, but in your heart you've gone cold. I know what's going on. So there's the watchful eye of the, the, uh, of the Lord. Um, and then we see this even more clearly. Remember in chapter 1, this vision of Jesus, where it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is verse 10 to 13, skipping some. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet. And then I turned, so this is a lot like you know, the introduction of the lion and then you turn and see a lamb. Heard a loud voice and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, what did I see? I saw seven golden lampstands. So he doesn't see the source of the vo voice, the source of the loud voice, at first at least. He sees the churches. We find out later that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. So, and so Jesus is, we see him among the church, his churches, and what's he doing? He's like a priest. He's dressed in priestly garb, and he's taking care of his churches, just like the priest takes care of the lampstands in the temple. So, yeah, who Jesus is features very prominently in the vision of John. And what, how Jesus appear, appears features very prominently in the vision. But where Jesus is also features very prominently in the vision. He is the priest, the high priest of his people, and he dwells with them. He is in their midst, attending to their needs. The church is well watched over and well tended to. Later in chapter 7, we saw that we, uh, we read about the saints being sealed so that they are protected from the onslaught of the world and its troubles. And uh, so the big picture is, you know, Jesus knows about this onslaught. Jesus is protecting us in the midst of this onslaught. Jesus is with us in the midst of this onslaught. And that's very comforting. Now that leads us to the next step, and that is worship, because, um, you know, that's the response. At every step along the way, that's the response of all the beings that are in the know, that is, all the ones that really see what's going on, they're automatically worshiping in response to all this. First, it's the 24 elders. And then the group increases more and more. The four creatures, the four living creatures who seem to be heavenly beings, some kind of angelic beings, are added in. And then they're joined by myriads and myriads of angels. And then by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. So even, you know, moles and worms under the earth join in in in, uh, worshiping the Lord. And then comes all the saints who are in heaven. Saints from every nation, tribe, language, and people declaring the worthiness of the one who sits on the throne and the worthiness of the Lamb. And, you know, there's so much worship here. And this is, we've said that this is not only, um, you know, for our information, but this is to help us to see how to worship and also help us, it calls us to become a part of this ever-increasing sphere of worship that is really what we have access to it as well. In fact, we already saw that among the, in the midst of this worship are the prayers of the saints that are rising up like, like uh, incense. So we can participate in this worship as well. Even while we're here on this earth, the more we are able to see the glory of what Jesus is doing and has done, the more we can participate as well. And then the last thing in, in the uh, flow of it is that 
we're very clear sense in these first seven chapters that all of history is moving to a grand conclusion. That this is not just given us to tell, that, to tell us what's happening in the now. But there's progress. There's a vector that points us forward to something that comes at the end. We see this in a number of ways in these chapters. We see the terror of the wicked as they, as they contemplate the face of God's wrath and the wrath of the Lamb and, and try to flee and call on the rocks and mountains to fall on them in Re- Revelation 6. We see the promises that are given to God's people in chapters and churches in chapters 2 and 3. If you overcome, these things will be given to you. This great reward that will come at the end of your struggle, the end of your race, the end of your battle. These are the rewards that will come to you. Um, We see it in the saints before the altar. You know, the saints have gone before us, crying out to God, how long before you bring vengeance upon those who shed our blood? So we see that there's this sense through the whole thing that there's a great day coming, a great grand finale. We see the assembly of the saints worshiping in the second half of chapter 7, which we talked about last week, which, which uh, at least anticipates the grand worship that will exist uh, when the Lord appears again on the final day. And we see the great promise at the end of that section in 17, that the Lamb will be your, their shepherd and guide them to springs of living water and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there's this anticipation of this ultimate fellowship, this ultimate life that we'll be living, even beyond the life that those enjoy who are in heaven before the Lord now. And then finally, and we'll get to this more later, finally we're given the half hour of silence, which I think is the first... I'll give you a little hint. Think the first little moment of the last chapter that, uh, that is, is coming. And all we're given in this, in this uh, at this time in Revelation, we're given a lot more later and culminates at the very end. But right now we're given only the first little moment of it's a half hour of silence in heaven. Okay, so that is, um, as I look, look at the, what we've covered so far, that's, that's what I see. You may see more, more things that, are, that have hit, struck you, or you may have other questions. But um, I, I'm now out of what I prepared in my notes, so I'm turning it over to you to to either add to or inquire about something that um, I've said. Mike. One of the things you asked earlier um, was what we learned about the church. And I assume your experience is the same as mine, that we feel like we're on this narrow path, we're kind of alone in this world. We're not alone, we've got the church. But it's the narrow path 
Right. Language, it's diverse. Um, what it doesn't say is many generations of time is, is the powerful thing here that we can't see. It, you know, we can only see what's around us. Right. This church, described in Revelation, has the dimension of time to. Yes, it does. And guess what? That part has been revealed to us, and it wasn't revealed to the church in the first century. Why? Because it's not been revealed so much in the scriptures, it's been revealed through history. That is, we've, we know it's, been, it's going to take at least 2,000 years for these promises to come to be fulfilled. They didn't know that. They didn't know if the, theirs was the generation. But we know theirs wasn't the generation, right? So, so yes, we, we have an even richer, we have a whole other dimension that we could add in to that beautiful picture. Very good point. Jordan. Um, you know, with the letters to the churches, you see a lot of, there's certainly external threats, you know, persecution or the seduction of the world. There's also a lot of internal threats and struggles going on. Um, struggles of the heart, you know, like loss of your first love and drifting from Christ. Um, and uh, patiently enduring and, and things of that nature. And it's funny because in each of these letters, there's bits and pieces you can pull out that certainly apply to the church today, even to this particular church, things that we deal with. Um, and uh, so it, it's just amazing. I, I love reading these epistles of Jesus because there's just so many nuggets that are applicable, I think, to us today, you know, thousands of years later. That's amazing. Yep. Yep. And, you know, you read church history, it's the same thing. There's, you know, you go through all these heresies that have cropped up and, and been argued against. And, you know, I could name some of them now and very few of them would, of you would ever even, would be able to recognize, what is that? You know, monotheletism, what is that? Well, that's, be, you know, just like we can read the Revelation 2 and 3 and not know what the Nicolaitan uh, teaching was you know we don't we just it doesn't really matter the point the point of it is that there were false teachings coming along and they had to be argued against and the truth had to be defended and and the people who wouldn't let go of the false teachings had to be disposed of one other thing that that uh, I wanted to say you know, many of our brethren this morning are on their way back. I, I wanted to thank you for being here because, um, you know, right now there are many in the car on their way back from the Ligonier Conference in Florida, and I think probably everyone is conscious of that. Um, but there are times, even in this life, where you're given a little bigger glimpse of the innumerable ones that, you know, that what you say, we feel alone. Well, you don't feel alone when you're sitting in the midst of a Ligonier conference with, you know, 6,000 people there, or however many are there. And uh, there's a, and we've been to big conferences, you know, at the Urbana conference, um, which filled the stadium of 17,000 people in Urbana, Illinois. That is um, a, an opportunity to see that, you know, there's a lot of, little clusters and when they put them, bring them all together there's a lot of people there 
it's, it really is an innumerable number. And it's a beautiful thing. And you can, and you know, what, that's so, such a tiny little uh, number compared to um, what there will be on the, at the end, you know. And, uh, you know, when we went the, did that missionary conference in West Africa, you know, those missionaries are feeling so alone. But they love joining with, you know, their fellow missionaries and just looking out and seeing there's, there's 40 of us. You know, it's like, this is amazing. I'm not alone. There's other people that are doing the same thing I am and we can encourage each other. And, and uh, I can, when I'm out there serving, I no longer feel alone because I know this guy and he's doing the same thing and I know that she's praying for me and that kind of thing. It's really a, a wonderful aspect of how God strengthens us. Sarah. to celebrate whenever the trajectory of Christianity seems to be even plateauing or even going down. The world loves to celebrate. It's okay. Finally, the beginning of the end. You know, finally this is, Christianity is going to die in this, in this voice that keeps speaking to me and keeps bothering me and I can't get it to shut up. We'll be silenced. You know, they're just longing for that. But, of course, God's just like God's rules over the stock market, the, the kingdom ebbs and flows and the tide comes in and out and, uh, and according to his will. And we should not ever fret because the, the uh, trajectory doesn't look like it's going up. Um, it is going up. You know, I mean, what, my mother, I can't, my mother is, uh, she's got... Uh, memory issues and so she'll ask you the same question many times in a conversation and one of the questions she just asks over and over and over again is so are churches growing today or are they shrinking and uh, for some reason she just can't let go of that and uh, and I know down deep why she wants to ask that question because she's heard that it's shrinking and she wants to hear more <laughs> but um my, my mom's not a believer. And, uh, but the fact is, you know, 
that doesn't mean anything to me. It, it shouldn't bother us. I mean, obviously, it bothers us in the sense that we wish it were, you know, there were revival breaking out on every side all the time. But we know also that that's not the way God works. He's never worked that way for, you know, hundreds of years at a time. It, it ebbs and flows. And uh, there are important reasons for that we could get into sometime. But, but um, we have to trust that God's doing what he knows. And, uh, and there's things that show us God's power. I mean, I was just thinking about the report that I gave last week about Ben and Michelle. And how, you know, the, the analogy of the sower who goes around sowing and, you know, the seed doesn't grow or do anything here. Some it grows up for a little bit and then dies. Every once in a while, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk, you know. You, you throw a seed down and boom! It's like, wow! What? God shows what he could do anytime he wanted to. You know, he, he can do his will. He, can, he has done. I mean, Whole cities have come to faith in just 48-hour time period in, in history. It's uh, God can do whatever he wants. And, and so uh, we shouldn't be discouraged because things aren't happening with the success that we would like it to happen. I also tell my mother, this is my first part of the answer whenever I give it, well, if you're thinking worldwide, it's still growing fast. And that's true, you know. Christianity is growing fast. If you're if you're con- including Asia and including Africa, the church is very strongly on the rise. Yeah, and and yeah, there's one other part about the church in America too is that most of the shrinkage in America, and there has been shrinkage in the church. Most of it is that people there are less and less people pretending to be Christians. And, you know, when I was a child, everybody wanted to say, I'm a Christian. Because there was some social benefit saying that. Today, there's stigma if you say that. And therefore, more and more people are being honest, which is great. Last thing we want is a church full of people that are pretending to be Christians. Mike. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. But, you know, we're we're trained to look at things according to statistics, according to sociology, and this is how they they look at it. And we have to learn not to look at the things the way the world teaches us to look at them. Anyone else? Final thoughts, final questions? Good conversation. Okay, let's close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that as we live in the midst of a world which feeds us lies, that you have given us the anchor of your word. 
And Lord, it is such a joy for us to pay attention to it and to view our lives and the world that we live in through the truth of your word. And dear Lord, we pray that you would help us as interpreters of the world to learn to interpret it through the lens of your word. This is hard for us, dear Lord, for we are easily influenced and easily deceived. And thank you so much again for this wonderful book that you've given to us. Even though it contains so many difficult parts, thank you that it, that it speaks such glorious truths to us at the same time. Thank you that in it we see you and your son Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.